Hello, humans and aliens, and welcome to another edition of The Journey Show. Hello again, it is April 3rd, 1966, and we are on the third episode of the second season of The Journey Show. Today, we're going to be adventuring to the very frontiers that humanity has visited in the recent years, and we've got an amazing panel of experts here to discuss all sorts of things, from mountains to outer spaces to underwater to Olduvai Gorge to, gosh, everywhere, and these are some really amazing people. I've got Professor Elliot Franz, intrepid adventurer and peripatetic soul. I've got Jonathan Reen, who is possibly the most experienced person in the world when it comes to fusing archaeology and geodetics. And of course, our very own journeyer, KD, who knows practically everything about everything. So we're going to get right to talking about the frontiers. We're gonna discuss various ones and then we wanna to talk to you. We wanna hear from you about what frontiers you'd like explored. And by the way, if you're wondering what going to outer space or going underwater or going in the middle of Africa has to do with why we're talking about the origins of humanity or magnetic fields around the earth, why are we discussing those things as well? The answer is twofold. One, you have to go to strange places to find the science and two, because I want to talk about those things, and this is my show, and I can do whatever I want. All right. So we'll be talking about that in just a second. But first, this news. Smile. Buddhist protest of South Vietnamese Premier Cao Ki, as well as American involvement of the war, continues to escalate. Tens of thousands are now on the march throughout the country, including the capital, Saigon. Smiles no more. Indonesian leader Sukarno has been all but ousted by General Suharto, reversing the dictator's pro-communist stances and dumping communist cabinet members. French leader Charles de Gaulle announced March 9th that he is pulling France out of NATO's command structure, though not out of NATO, and declared that American forces must leave the country in one year. Snap elections in the United Kingdom on March 31st ended in a massive widening of the Labour majority, as current Prime Minister Wilson expected when he called them last month. The Tories and their leader Heath waged a lackluster campaign and their defeat was never in doubt. A week before saw a kiss of peace between church heads. For the first time in 400 years, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope were face to face, the historic encounter occurring in the Sistine Chapel in Rome. On March 17th, the last of four H-bombs lost when a B-52 crashed near Palomares, Spain last month, was recovered by the midget sub Alvin. Spain is still forbidding American military overflights of their country. In an echo of last summer's violence, a three-hour riot erupted in Watts, leaving two men, one white, one black, dead. In a landmark NCAA championship basketball match on March 19th, the nearly all-black Texas Western University team beat first-ranked University of Kentucky's white team 72-65. to It is clear that American teams will need to integrate, giving them access to a wider pool of talent to remain competitive. 
Justice at last, a landmark Supreme Court decision on March 28th reversed state dismissals for indictments of the killers of Lemuel Penn and civil rights workers Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. This decision followed on the heels of decisions that resulted in similar justice for Viola Liucho, murdered after the Selma March last year. On March 22nd, General Motors President James Roche, appearing before a Senate committee, apologized to consumer protectionist attorney Ralph Nader for its campaign of intimidation and surveillance. Nader published his Unsafe at Any Speed last year, an indictment of the American auto industry. After a hairy one-day flight, Neil Armstrong and David Scott managed to make it home in their crippled Gemini 8 after the first in-space docking. The mission was nearly lost when one of the Gemini's engines got stuck in the on position, whirling it around at a dizzying rate. British astronomer Sir Bernard Lovell confirmed that the Soviet spacecraft Luna 10 became the first satellite to orbit the moon today. The Russians have now beaten us both to and around the moon. Do they have a secret manned program under wraps too? And close to home, Ken Kesey held another LSD acid test at the famous Troopers Club in Los Angeles before departing for Mexico. One of the bands that played the event was a new one called The Grateful Dead. And that's the news. So again, I am hoping that you all will tell us what you want us to explore because we can go into any detail on any number of things. But first, I think I would like to discuss what Elliot has for us. So Professor, tell us your topic of most interest and why you're here to talk about it. And who are you, by the way? Uh, yeah, I'm Professor Elliot. I'm an adventurer. I like going on exploration journeys, uh, taking a look around the world wherever I can to see where what adventures await me. And I'm, I'm a fan of modern day adventures as well. I, I keep up with the news on who's, who's exploring the world. There's still a lot to be discovered out there. There's still a lot of uh, things to be pushed in terms of human capability. And I'm, I'm very eager to share a lot of those stories today. I've got four stories, four people to share today um, who are currently adventuring or pushing the limits of human capabilities. Well, go ahead. All Let's right, let me, uh, let me open up a couple of photos here. This is, uh, we're gonna start with Dougal Haston. Um, this is Dougal Haston, he's only 24 years old. He's a mountaineer from Scotland. And just last week, he was, led the first successful team to summit the Eiger in Switzerland <clears throat> via the direct route or the Diratissima. Um, let me show you that mountain, just so you have an idea, this, is the Diratissima, this is the uh, the Eiger. It is an extremely difficult climb to say the least. Uh, the first actual summit of this mountain was in 1962. However, no one has until last week climbed from the front face. Uh, he had a team of four Germans along with him and he is actually just one year older than Tony Kurtz who attempted this same Turney 30 years prior in 1936. Now I bring up turning Tony Kurtz because I need to specify just how dangerous this journey is. Tony Kurtz and all of his members in his team died attempting this same journey. Uh, there was an avalanche that pulled them all off of the top of the mountain. Uh, the first was unclipped at the time and fell to the base of the mountain. One died on impact with the rock face. Uh, another was choked by a rope wrapping around his diaphragm. And then 
Kurtz actually survived for three nights until rescuers were able to reach nearby where he told his story and what had happened. Unfortunately, they were unable to free him until the next day when he had already perished. Um, his last words when he was attempting to be rescued were, I can't go on anymore, and he died. So it, it, it is very important to note that these kinds of adventures are very, very dangerous. Um, this is a photo taken just last week of, uh, of our adventure, Dougal Haston. Um, this <laughs> Dougal Haston was actually leading one team while there was a parallel team of five Americans attempting the same route, uh, sort of parallel to them. So they had a lot of crossover. Um, again, unfortunately, one of the Americans died on this recent attempt. They had a rope snap and uh, they dropped. So even this most recent attempt has had some deaths. Um, at that time, Haston's team had debated whether or not to continue to the peak, whether or not it was right or to stop. And Haston pushed for them to continue the climb because it would make it would give Harlan's death some sort of meaning. Uh, they decided to name it after the American, so they named the route the John Harlan Climb. Uh, <laughs> Dougal Haston has said that this is the oh yes, this is John Harlan uh, who we have just lost. Um, this is Dougal Haston on the climb. He said, "Quote: uh, This is." I enjoyed it, but I won't do it again. It was the hardest climb I've ever attempted. Uh, as of yesterday, Haston and his team were admitted to the hospital to treat their frostbitten fingers. Uh, you may be able to see in this photograph, he has no gloves on. His fingers are just that blue because the, uh, the weather in this area is just not, it's not great for human beings without, without proper gear. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on to more cold. Uh, an adventurer who is probably quite well known to many of you out here is Edmund Hillary. Uh, this is a photo of Edmund Hillary and his guide, Tenzing Norgay, in 1953, after they had become the first to summit Mount Everest. Uh, since that day, Edmund Hillary has summited 10 other peaks in the Himalayas, uh, certainly continuing his journey and his adventuring. Uh, uh, Professor, I have a question for you. Yes. I can understand why we go to Antarctica and the North Pole and outer space and underwater in Africa in the in the pursuit of scientific knowledge. There are some things we, we literally can't get anywhere else. Certainly. What do we learn by going to the tops of mountains or is this all just a sport? So I think it depends on who you're talking about. Dougal Haston, I think it's just a sport for him. He He's done a lot of mountaineering and, and plotting routes around the Scottish Highlands. Um, determining new paths to different mountains. So I think for him, it's 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 a sport. It's for him, it's it's finding ways to push himself. However, in regards to Edmund Hillary, there's definitely some scientific uh, uh, aspects to what he's doing in the mountains, and that's actually very relevant to his current journey. Um, he was funded uh, for his latest journey, which is the Silver Hut Expedition in 1960 to 1961. Uh, let's uh, get a photo here. There is the Silver Hut. So he proposed a, a multi-purpose trip. One, he wanted to prove that oxygen wasn't needed, like additional oxygen, tanks of oxygen, wouldn't be necessary to summit any of the highest peaks in the world. He wanted to prove that a human being, a human body, could survive even possibly Mount Everest without the additional use of oxygen. And two... 
he wanted to prove or disprove the existence of the Yeti, um, which is certainly a lot of fun. So in this particular journey, they camped out at 18,500 feet. This is where this, uh, this tin can is. This is the Silver Hut. And they camped out there from November of 1960 to March of 1961. The idea being you can acclimatize to the lower oxygen levels and then attempt to summit a high peak. Um, along the way, they took measurements of their oxygen and CO2 levels. So you'll see this is uh, one of the team members breathing into a bag. And this right here is a uh, Lloyd Haldane apparatus. It's a pretty new device that's used to determine how much CO2 versus oxygen there is in a gas. Uh, and I have some of these in my house just because they're fun. They, they are indeed fun. I would love to play with some of those if you if you give me the opportunity sometime. Um, what what they discovered is that initially when they, they when they uh, entered eighteen thousand feet, their work capacity had uh, been divided in half, uh, which makes sense. But it increased to two thirds at the end. So while at sea level your blood is almost one hundred percent saturated with oxygen. At this level, it was at 70%, and while exercising, it dropped to below 50% oxygen levels. Um, everyone lost weight on this journey, which is a severe sign of, of severe anemia um, through their journey. So it's definitely going to take an impact on their bodies. Um, while they were at this altitude, they were looking for the Yeti. So there's <laughs> the reason they chose this specific area was because of this photograph taken by Eric Shipton in 1951. Some, some people may recognize it. Uh, it is the famous Yeti footprint photo. Uh, this is the same valley where there are many Yeti sightings, supposedly. And in fact, you would be hard-pressed to find anyone living in that area who does not believe in the Yeti. Every single person there claims that it exists, and not only that it exists, but that there are three different kinds of Yeti. Uh, there's an eight-foot-tall vegetarian, there is a four to five foot tall uh, Yeti with a pointy skull, backwards feet, and it eats human beings. And then there's one that lives in the jungle that's only two feet tall, and it likes to pile sticks and stones as a hobby. So with all of these reports of the Yeti existing in this valley, uh, this is the location they decided to look for the Yeti. So they announced they would pay for any physical evidence of the Yeti, dead, alive, or even just parts of an actual Yeti. And they did receive a few items. So let's let's take a look at a couple of these. Uh, this is a scalp of a Yeti, supposedly. Uh, it was inside a temple in, in nearby regions. Um, I'll, I'll, here's another angle of this. You'll see that it's pointed. Uh, That's actually was, Congressman McGovern's toupee, I believe. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it a striking, striking resemblance. <laughs> um, so this is, this is uh, interesting because it has no stitches in it at all. Now, the bones they discovered were just human, but the scalp was a little bit trickier because it does have that pointed shape described to them as being Yeti-like. So what the team did is create a little wooden mold, and they attempted to recreate the scalp with some uh, goat pelts. And they were, in fact, able to replicate this process and make something that looks very, very similar to this scalp. So we, uh, we're, we're pretty confident that these are all fakes. They also received a couple of uh, bear pelts for uh, Tibetan blue belt bear belts. Um, so, so pre Professor, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut you there because this is all amazingly fascinating. Um, and we could probably do a whole segment on mountaineering. 
That said, there's been some demand to discuss some of the other frontiers of science. Um, and I want to go to some other places. For instance, Antarctica. Ooh. So keeping in the, uh, in the theme of great cold, this is an expedition that was launched last year by Argentina to the South Pole. Um, and in fact, uh, KD is reporting, she's one of the first women in Antarctica. She's reporting from Australia's Davis Station. Um, Kay, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on in us in uh, Antarctica right now and how cold is it right now? It's uh, <clears throat> just coming into uh, autumn down here. So the days are getting much shorter and before too much longer, of course, we're going to be going into the uh, perpetual night period. Um, I'm not quite sure what the current outside temperature is, but I'm not going out to check. It's um, not looking well right now. It's um, about 5.30 in the morning. So it's uh, pretty cold out there. <laughs> as you, as you, can, um, you can probably tell, it's, you can actually see a window behind us, which normally you'd be able to see the snowy reaches. But uh, right now you can tell it's nighttime. Uh, and I'm going to pause you for just a sec. Is Jonathan Reen out there? He went to complete blackness a little while ago. We may have lost our satellite I, link with him. He might be doing an oats. <laughs> outside. Jonathan, we can't see you, so you may want to uh, to uh, disconnect. Go out on your roof, disconnect the satellite link, and then uh, and then reconnect it so Intelsat can uh, reconnect with you because we we can't see you at all. And that's a shame because you're you're the one of the handsomest of all of us. Okay. Uh, so while you're doing can that, you, can you uh, hear me? We can hear you just fine, but we can't see you unless unless it's uh you know uh. Oh, there's can a you face. turn that lights? Yeah, I, I, no. I think we must be somewhere where it's winter, except that doesn't make sense because we're near the equinox. So maybe yes. you're on the dark side of the moon, which is really a frontier for science. Um, it could be. It could be. So I would I would try completely disconnecting your satellite link mainframe and then reconnecting it. And while while you're figuring out your technical difficulties, uh, Kay, why don't you continue? Sorry about that. Excuse me. Um, yeah, let me see. I'm not quite sure of the current um, work program of some of my colleagues, but we do a lot of work down here on uh, auroral studies. Lot of interest in the uh, upper atmosphere, so and the ionosphere particularly. So there's quite a bit of work being done out of the uh, the base here. And in fact, uh, one of my previous colleagues who was down here back in the uh, late fifties during the uh, International Geophysical Year is now over in the US, and he's actually hoping to become an astronaut. Why is Antarctica such a good place to do research on the ionosphere? Because it's uh, one of the areas where, of course, the magnetic poles are coming back down. Uh, the magnetic lines of force around the Earth are curving back into the south magnetic pole, just as they do for the north magnetic pole. And, of course, we have the auroras down here. So just as you have the aurora borealis up north, got the aurora australis down here. And it's absolutely glorious when you have the opportunity to see it. Antarctica is interesting. Uh, it, it is as almost as new a frontier as outer space. We only began uh, really our permanent presences in any real scale in the last decade. In 1959, uh, about 11 
nation signed an Antarctic treaty saying we will use the continent for science, but not for exploitation. And in 1957, that was the International Geophysical Year, which was actually the sequel to the International Polar Year that happened in the early 30s. So not only did we explore space quite a bit in 1957, as you may recall, that's when Sputnik launched, but there were 10,000 people in Antarctica for that year and a half long year. Yeah, it's practically a traffic jam getting down there. <laughs> right. These days, I think the population of Antarctica is, is a few hundred in the winter and about a thousand in the summer. But they've set up a nuclear reactor at McMurdo, which is the largest base. Um, and they're talking about permanent settlements in Antarctica. Um, Kate, what is it like living at Davis Station? Is there anything to do? Is it boring? Is it cold? Is it warm? Is it dry? What's it like? Well, even in the summer, it's not particularly warm. After all, we are at the uh, the bottom of the world at the South Pole. But um, you don't just go out on casual treks around. It's not, not the sort of place where you say, hmm, I think I'll go for a 20-mile hike today. <laughs> you do tend to prefer to have a reason to go out um, any distance from the base. It's pretty cramped. Um, in fact, the room you can see me in at the moment is our general purpose storeroom, which uh, just happens to make a handy communication station. But uh, there's not a lot of room. Um, food is pretty mediocre, shall we say. It's probably better than space food, but I wouldn't say by too much. The, um, the one thing you can do, of course, is go out and we can watch the penguins and the seals, um, all the, uh, the birds flying around. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating place just to sit when you have that opportunity or stand outside and just take in the immenseness of it. That's the truly fascinating thing. Now, Renata has a question. She wants to know if we have definitively proven that the Earth is not hollow, because anyone who reads Edgar Rice Burroughs knows that there's holes to the inner Earth at the poles. Uh, well, nobody's fallen down one yet here at the South Pole. Um, I'm not so sure if anybody can confirm at the North Pole, perhaps uh, Professor Elliot, but um, I'm not aware of any expedition yet having disappeared down a hole into the, uh, the inner Earth. Th thus far, I haven't heard of one either. <laughs> and and one of the uh, one of the groups that I uh, will be talking about at some point is Vivian Fuchs, who Fuchs, who has officially reached the South Pole. Fuchs is a fantastic name. Yep. Someday I will write a story of Antarctic expedition, and my characters will be named after famous Antarctic explorers like Fuchs and Palmer and McCready. Um, by the way, it has been asked that we also talk about outer space. So very quickly, I just want to talk about the uh, mission that everyone saw last month. Everyone was probably glued to their television set because uh, an X-15 pilot named Neil Armstrong and his companion David Scott went up in Gemini 8 um, for the first in-space docking. And uh, everyone thought it was going to go just fine, um, but we had some issues. So... As you know, they connected with their target Agena just fine. But once they docked, the ship started spinning around wildly. And after they disconnected, thinking it was the Agena that was the problem, it turned out it was the Gemini that was the problem. And it was only Neil Armstrong's quick thinking and test pilot reflexes that allowed him to save the trip. What he did was he turned off the maneuvering thrusters of the Gemini and instead used his re-entry motors 
to uh, readjust the ship. Unfortunately, having done that, it was now time to scrub the mission and come back to Earth, which thankfully they did safely. Um, but as you all know, space is in many ways what uh, they're calling in the new show that's coming out in September, The Final Frontier. And people have spent as long as two weeks in space. And uh, and what we what the astronauts, possibly the most important thing that was discovered after two weeks in space is that it is impossible to hold your bowel functions for more than eight <laughs> days in outer space, much to the dismay and consternation of your crewmates. But, you know, it's a, it's a phone booth-sized spacecraft. What are you going to do? Uh, I wonder if anyone here had any extra tidbits they wanted to talk about space or if there are any people who want to know more about life in space we will be happy to answer your questions because of course Kay is a space historian and i am as well and pretty much everyone else has at least a passing interest in it Kay, do you have anything exciting to talk about gemini or maybe apollo well i think the exciting thing is of course they've selected the crew now for the first uh manned apollo mission so that's um that's interesting to see who they've chosen because we've got um Gus Grissom, who, of course, was the second American in space um, and then the commander of the first Gemini mission. Uh, Ed White, who uh, was the first American to make a spacewalk and a, uh, a young rookie by the name of uh, Roger Chaffee. So they'll be uh, gearing up for their first flight uh, next year. Um, and that'll be interesting to see how the Apollo spacecraft shakes out because it's got a very important mission in terms of uh, making it all the way to the moon. And um, of course, that's what Gemini 7 was all about, was was um, carrying out a long duration mission to be sure that people could actually survive the length of a proposed uh, trip to the moon, spend some time on the moon and return to Earth. So I think NASA's currently looking at something like a maximum mission duration of 14 days. So the uh, Gemini 7 mission was a 14-day mission and um, it did get pretty horrible up there by the uh, the end of the mission. Ah, there we are. We can now see the um, the Apollo 1 crew. That's um, Ed White on the left, Grissom in the centre and Chaffee on the, uh, on the right. And you can see their uh, Apollo command module there. It has a, uh, a great deal more room in it than the uh, Gemini. I can't remember exactly who described it this way, but somebody said it was um, about the same as uh, spending time, you know, two weeks on the front seat of a Volkswagen. Uh, that's the, about the amount of room you had in a Gemini capsule, but there's there's a lot more room in uh, in Apollo, and you're going to need it for a voyage that far. Renata wants to know if, in fact, uh, the Chinese are planning to put a base on the moon. Uh, it's interesting that you asked that. Um, just a couple of years ago, very few science fiction authors were talking about um, other moon colonies besides American and Soviet. Uh, and I think Robert Silverberg may have been the first to to um, to posit a Chinese base and an Indian base. In fact, um, the Chinese have just detonated two nuclear bombs, so I would not be surprised if they also have a space program in the works. Uh, we'll see how well their their current economic leap forward does for them. Mm. Although right. they've, uh, I'm oh, just going to say ahead. the Chinese have still got to actually launch their first satellite, so they've got a little way to go yet. Yes, uh, well, I, I suspect we'll have a French base on the moon long before we have a <laughs> Chinese base. Yeah. Although, funnily enough, 
you may not know this, the one of the first Chinese science fiction stories that was ba written back in 1904 was actually called Moon Colony. Oh. So it was about a Chinese adventurer who, uh, a little bit like um, Jules Verne's uh, trip to the moon, you know, Chinese adventurer who winds up uh, making it to the moon. <laughs> and by the way, we have an esteemed person uh, connecting to us via telex all the way from the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, correct, um, is Al Jackson. Um, he's a, a young, I believe he's out a master's degree, so I won't call him Dr. Jackson, but um, but uh, he's a very knowledgeable person and he's been uh, providing the journey with updates uh, in his adventures and he's met some interesting personages and he's gonna be one of the more important people in, the, in our space program, I believe. So thank you very much for coming, Mr. Jackson. Uh, I want to take us back to Earth, to one of my favorite topics. Uh, and speaking of coming back to Earth, Jonathan, if you could have your cameraman maybe dip the camera a little bit so we can actually see that you have a chin. Or <laughs> There you go. Or you, or you can do that. Um, so, Jonathan, we haven't talked much about you, but you know a heck of a lot. Tell us who you are, and let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about why we're going to Tanganyika, or now it's Tanzania, uh, what we're doing out there. Uh, well, first, I will tell us about myself. Uh, I'm an archaeologist, but I also have been working with uh, geodetics. Um, and that is my primary goal right now, is entwining two in both fields. Um, uh, but I, I, I express a really um, strong interest in how much we adventure around and around people. Uh, all this is incredible, and let's take us to Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania, and you find Lewis and Mary Leakey. Uh, both were archaeologists. Yep. We've lost the satellite link again. You did? Oh, oh I see. You, I see. You were uh, yeah, yeah, getting yeah, out your, yeah. your slides. Oh, wonderful. Perfect. Yes. That looks great. All right. So, no, so in the top left, you have, you can see uh, Lewis and Mary Leakey here, but let's first go into who they were. Both were archaeologists already supported in, the, in accredited journals. However, Lewis was renowned around the world at this time, but Mary, however, was not. What, what was impressive was the fact that she was even noted in accredited journals because during the late 1920s, for women to hold such status as an archaeological illustrator was almost unheard of, used in peer-reviewed journals. There were a few, but very, very few. Uh, it was also equally impressive that since Mary was not verbose or grandstanding, unlike uh, her, her husband, she let her archaeological illustrations speak for herself. They both later became paleontologists, with Lewis focusing on paleontology and osteology of hominids. Osteology just means the study of skeletal structures of hominids. And Mary also focused on paleoarchaeology, which has something to my own heart because I actually did some work as a paleoarchaeologist. Uh, basically, it just means archaeology during the Paleolithic period, or to be more precise, it means archaeology focusing on hominid fossils ranging from 15 million years ago to 10,000 years ago, what we call the archaeological deep period or so, deep time. So, uh, so this, this is a time of history and it includes the entire evolution of humanity 
from when we were ape-like creatures. Correct. Uh, so a lot of paleontologists use the term deep time, and, and archaeologists adopted it. Uh, from here, we, we see the founding of where Lewis Leakey originally came from, uh, Kenya, and then he returned back to Kenya and that whole African continent to take up Eastern archaeological expeditions in the mid-1920s. Later publishing work on his hominid discoveries, Leakey made his first trip to Olduvai Gorge. Uh, down here, I don't know if you can see my cursor, uh, you actually, there, this is where the Olduvite Gorge is in Tanzania. I think it's actually From, approximately where Elliot's head is. Yes, yes. I was correct. <laughs> yes, yes, you are. Uh, from here, Lukey made its first trip after, after his second trip to Kenya, he made his first trip, as I said, to Olduvite Gorge, which is now located in Tanzania. At the time, it was not Tanzania. Uh, in 1931. The site would eventually become what both Leakey's become famous for. Louis, Louis Leakey then married Mary Nichol in 1937, her, you know, the woman you're seeing in all the photos. Uh, the two had worked together on Leakey's 1934 and um, ancestors. They were already working together even before they had relations with each other. So for which Nichol provided archaeological illustration which later on became acclaimed by National Geographic in the, in the 50s. Leakey again defied the conventions of his day by divorcing his first wife, with whom he had two children. Lewis and Mary then moved to Kenya themselves and had three children of their own. You see uh, the far right is Jonathan, is their eldest child. That's a good and name. then the Yes, I think so. And, and then the two children here. And then you see their Dalmatians, which were huge. What Jonathan becomes very uh, important later on. As a professional couple, Mary was known for keeping to herself and being particular about the quality and accuracy of her findings. She just wanted to do work, whereas Lewis was more of a showman, a lecturer. He was on even the uh, many different talk shows. He was comfortable pushing concepts to larger communities based on, uh, honestly, just theories while facing criticism over his fortrightness and legitimacy of his ideas. After World War II, Lewis became the curator of Corandon Memorial Museum in Nairobi and worked with other organizations that focused on prehistory research. This is important because at the same time, at Rusinga Island, Mary Leakey, discovered the fossil remains of Proconsul Africanus, an ancestor of apes and humans that existed more than 18 million years ago. This was groundbreaking at the time. After having done previous work at Aldivai, unearthing ancient tools and animal fossils, in 1959 is where we get the most notable excavations by both the Leakeys. That year, during a time when Lewis actually had the flu, Mary discovered a human fossil dubbed the Zingenthropus bosi, which later on was relegated to the Paranthropus in 1965. But it is estimated to be 2 million years old. You see the skull in the center picture. You see it. And it is 
arguably part of the robust Australopithecines. But this is this classification uh, classification of genus is very contested and will be revised probably in the future. We we just don't know. So just just to explain to the audience, for the last oh sixty years, our understanding of human evolution has been dramatically revised uh, with the discovery of what they call the South Ape Australopithecines. These are Correct. animals that walked upright like humans. In fact, from the neck down, they, they look almost human in their, in the skeletal finds that we found, but their heads are notably ape-like. You look at this Zanthropus and it looks like a gorilla or, or, or perhaps a chimpanzee. And the combination of the two was startling because for so long people had thought that the brain of the human developed first and the body would still be ape-like. And in fact, uh, uh, one of the biggest hoaxes in scientific history is of course, Piltdown Man which in the teens yes. um, was presented as authentic and, in fact, was the combination of a human skull and an ape-like uh, palate. This was disproven in the 50s. Um, and thankfully, right. uh, by the time Zinge was found, uh, we, we had settled upon a history that made sense based on the fossils we'd found. So we know that there were these south apes, these Australopithecines. We know there's another transitional creature between these apes and the Neanderthals and the Cro-Magnons of Europe that right now they're calling Pithecanthropus. You may have heard of Java Man and Peking Man, also at the Correct. ends of the earth these were found. Um, but we don't know what's in between. And so what Jonathan is talking about is, have they found that in between? And I think Jonathan's about to talk about Homo habilis. And after you talk about Homo habilis, I want to talk to the panel because there's some wild contestation over the status of Homo Very habilis. I'd love to where everybody stands on that. So I give it back to you, Jonathan. Tell us about Homo well, habilis. Actually, okay. before we move on, can I mention that, in fact, a lot of people don't know, Mary Leakey actually got her start under um, Gertrude Caton Thompson, who was one of the early female archaeologists who uh, led the first all-female archaeological expedition to um, uh, Greater Zimbabwe, was... Great Zimbabwe in 1929. Yeah, I was going to actually mention that earlier. I was trying to find a picture of her, and but some reason, they just she's been erased in history. Her pictures are not uh, hard are hard to find. But you, she's mentioned multiple times in National Geographic in other very accredited journals. So yes, that is a really good mention. Now she, she gave a lot of people their start. Actually, I mean Kathleen yeah, exactly. Kate Very Johnson. true, and 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 in fact, uh, she has a uh, their her family. Uh, uh, after she passed, her family set up a foundation for uh, women archaeologists. Uh, uh, I believe through Cambridge, of all things, it was because she didn't go to Cambridge, but it, I believe it's through Cambridge that there is a foundation for women archaeologists that they support undergraduate education. So yeah. Anyways, moving on to later in the 1960s, uh, at specifically 1961, uh, their, their son Jonathan and Leakey team made another major find, as uh, Ginning was referring to. That was, as aforementioned, the uh, Homo habilis, which, if correct, could be humanity's earliest discovered ancestor thus far. Uh, some accounts have a rough estimate of 2.4 to possibly 1.5 million years ago, 
but this is incredibly sketchy at best. Uh, after Louis Leakey discovered this, he went on a spoke tour across the world talking about how the fact that uh, finding that Homo habilis skull at the site, which he did find another mandible in 1964, that he was theorizing that Homo habilis and Zimbosi uh, represented a separate but coexisting hominid lineages. Now, let me tell you, this was very controversial, and it still is. Right now, it is a lot of people do not agree with this whatsoever or the classification of Homo habilis as getting mentioned. If this claim of coexistence is correct, however, it would be a landmark change in how we understand our evolution. Right, because right now the belief, from everything I've read, the belief is that there was a, a far distant human ancestor. It's it's spread out of Africa, and then these related but separate species all evolved independently into the races of humanity. If in fact the first humans existed in Africa, then we are all much more closely related: the black race, the white race, the red race, the yellow race, and the melee race. Exactly, as the judge in uh, Loving versus Virginia noted. Um, <laughs> may all be yeah, much the idea, more yeah. related, which, by yeah. the way, I would subscribe to because we, we all yeah. are, seem a lot personally, more similar I, different species. Yeah, personally, I, I find it compelling. Uh, yeah, but as right now, we just don't know. So, And what's really interesting all right. is all of this dating only recently became possible. Um, you can Very true. make guesses at dating based on the, the layer cake that is the geologic record as you go down in layers. But now we have the ability Correct. to radioactively date things. Also, another way you do it is by what uh, toolkits you find nearby. So, for instance, exactly. I found Homo habilis next to a fossilized jar of mustard, um, which obviously they came from my fridge and dates to about two million years ago when I bought it uh, from the local supermarket. So, um, so science is really important that way, the way it's progressed. Yeah, it's called serration, what you're referring to. And it is a technique that has been used throughout archaeology. But it's very dangerous because if there's any kind of mitigation, which basically means any bioturbation or animals in the area, that strata can be completely changed. If there were worms in that strata, if there were other things can change how something below is not always older it doesn't always it's not a hundred percent so yes yes but it does give you a ballpark figure and that's why i said when i said very roughly that is the ballpark figure it's the best we could do right now i i predict in the future that we will have better techniques um but your carbon dating we we truly do not have accurate yet uh, i i've heard a lot of people referring to something of possibly uh, a form of uh, a radioactive carbon dating that could uh, have a better half-life. But till then, these are the dates we have. Do you believe, and, and what's the opinion of the panel, do you believe that either Zinzanthropus or Homo habilis was using the tools that were found in Olduvai Gorge, or do you think these come from some other species, maybe there's a Pithecanthropus species we just haven't encountered yet. I think it's entirely possible. I, I we we've, we've seen birds in zoos utilize sticks as tools before, so I, I see no reason why any any other species could have been 
even creating tools, especially if they've got the appendable, the, the thumb use to be able to develop those tools. And Kay, what do you think? Uh, it's not my area of speciality, but um, I'm inclined to I'm inclined to go along with uh, Professor Elliot on this one. Well, remember, all experts can talk about every single every single piece of material, uh, you know, with equal facility. So uh, you, everyone can opine away. Actually, very quickly, I wanted to talk about Jane Goodall, um, and I suspect okay. that Mr. Reen has got uh, some materials on that. I don't want to spend too much time on her, but the reason she's been in the news a lot lately. Um, and the reason why she spent several years hanging out with chimpanzees. And the reason she is important is she actually was sent to Tanganyika, uh, now Tanzania. Yeah, Tanzania. Right. But it was Tanganyika yes, at the time, was. so it counts. Um, it was. It was. It was. She was, it actually, was. Sent, she was actually sent by Leakey to, uh, to look at chimpanzees because they are considered one of our closest relatives and therefore perhaps shed some clues as to what uh, human ancestors might have been like. And she discovered a lot of really interesting things about them. Jonathan, you've met Miss Goodall, is that correct? Yes, I have, in fact. What's she uh, like? She is quite, she was very actually quiet and friendly. And it's not the picture I've heard from. So it, it, because she was such a driven person. So it, it is, it is, it was quite the change from what, my, what I expected. Um, but she had to be driven, and I'll explain why. Uh, here, here she is. Uh, so first, we are going to now travel. We're staying in Tanzania, as he said, uh, to the Gombe Stream National Park. And Goodall was already, even though she was un unexperienced, but within a year, she was already being considered the world's foremost expert on chimpanzees. Within a year. So that should tell you how significant of, the, of some of the things she has and how controversial some of the things she has had come. But first, let's go to her timeline. In 1960, Jane Goodall and her mother, Vane, Vane arrived on the shores of Gombe Stream Chimpanzee Reservoir in western Tanzania, as you can see in the top left. Uh, you can see both of them. Later that year, Goodall found chimpanzees eating meat by observing a group of chimps eating a bush pig. You can see in the bottom left. Prior to this discovery, chimpanzees were considered to be vegetarians. So this was already a big information, uh, a, a blow to a lot of primatologists at the time. What occurred after that, it was even more revolutionary. She saw tool use, cognitive development in chimpanzees. So these are things that never existed even in, in you know, dreams of primatologists of possible uh, possibilities it completely changed how we uh, thought chimpanzees and how we thought of all apes, for example. The fact that they were already showing signs of tool use. And then in 1961, she proved that the tool use in a National Geographic, which later on in 1963, I will cover, uh, she proved that the they were using tools for a purpose. So they weren't just using tools as 
possible food things. They were also using tools toward a, a, a given goal. There was armed conflict in chimpanzees over other chimpanzees using tools as weapons, not as just blunt objects. This drastically changed how we felt and how we observed primates. At the end... Especially when they found groups of nine primates playing uh, with a primitive ball-like apparatus and hitting it with a tree branch. <laughs> yes. That, that and, was a, a revelatory dis discovery. Exactly. They were, in essence, playing, or they were an organized group doing for a goal. I, it, 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 was, it was almost... It's not cognitive dissonance, but it's 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 almost something where where they can step out of themselves and have fun. At the time, this wasn't even things think any animal could do. They this wasn't an idea that they could think at the time. So I, I, I tease with the baseball reference, but it is true. They yeah they yeah. displayed such advanced cognitive skills beyond what we what we attributed to them. Um, yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I there are now people who think that it might be possible for chimps to learn language, and yeah, I think that yeah. could be uh, that could be very interesting. There's hints of that right now, but it's yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yes, yeah, it does, but I think that'll be really yeah. quite fascinating. Yeah, if they can yeah. demonstrate that as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, 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 I think Teres Songa was was uh, going. Uh, offering that to Jane Goodall as an option to possibly do a vocal speech pattern of chimpanzees. But that is still, we don't know yet. We don't know how that's going to end up being. And, and But as I said, in 1963, her first cover on the National Geographic basically made her a star. She, from there, she was having national journalists that all traveled to Tanzania to find her. At the time, she was in the bush. And what a lot of people don't know what was also going on in Tanzania at the time is there was an undeclared civil war uh, because British occupation ended in just five years ago, in 1961. She refused to stay in hiding. And for three years during this transfer of power, she continued her national interviews and research in plain sight of all the, of all the local Bushmen. The fact that she was now relatively known in Tanzania did help her. However, she did go into hiding for a brief time when she was she and a National Geographic uh, photographer were threatened in 1964. Her drive for excellence and tough nails approach is an inspiration for everyone, I think, and I I, I commend her approach and. It is controversial, some of her claims, but a lot of her claims have been proven already correct. And, and it's only been five, six years. I understand uh, getting into a little gossip. I understand she married her National Geographic photographer. Um, she did. And, and apparently spurned the advances of one of the leaky children, although they still get along. Yes. So, so more yes, connection. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, we it was a, it was not Jonathan. It was not Jonathan. It was one of the old sons. It was Richard. Sons. It was Richard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. we have eight minutes left, so I'd like to go to the last frontier we talked about, and the one that everyone wants to discuss: voyage to the bottom of the sea, <laughs> or as my dad likes to call it, voyage to the bottom of the bathtub. Yes. So, uh, so um, 
I'll, I'll just play a, a, a pickup. Who wants to talk about the latest uh, advances? Elliot, Kay, where are we now in terms of undersea adventures? I think it's pretty amazing at the moment. We've had um, the Sea Labs just uh, in the last couple of years where we've had people living under the water for extended periods um, to demonstrate that it is, in fact, possible using a technique called the saturation diving to actually spend extended periods living and working under the sea. Uh, in fact, we've even had uh, one of the Mercury astronauts um, <clears throat> excuse me, Carpenter, Scott Carpenter, and he spent time as the leader of two uh, expeditions on the Sea Lab 2 um, habitat mission or habitat program. And Sea Lab is right off the coast of uh, San Diego, actually. I, I could have visited them, but uh, I was busy. I was washing my hair that week. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually you could have had you could have had a bit of fun trying to get down to um, to visit them. They were at uh, you know they were at a reasonable depth and not something you could just hold your breath on the way down. I don't know. I saw an episode of Flipper last week, and Sandy made it down about two hundred fifty feet to rescue his dad. So he had oxygen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, I would have had oxygen had... too. Sorry, what was that? Uh, Lorelai said he had oxygen. Well, I would have had oxygen too. <laughs> Sorry, go on. I didn't mean that. I did mean to interrupt, but now I'm not interrupting anymore. Yeah, but um, <laughs> yes, there's um, you know, so there's a lot of interesting work being done there. And in fact, you mentioned uh, Flipper, part of uh, the work that's been done in connection with Sea Lab is actually uh, some of the Navy's uh, dolphin training, and they've been trying to. Uh, See if they can train dolphins to actually assist deep working crews. Wow. Um, they had a, a dolphin called um, Tuffy, and uh, they were trying to train him to, like, take, um, take specific equipment down to the Sea Lab or actually uh, be able to carry things between Sea Lab crew members when they were out working um, under the ocean. But um, I've heard some variable or various reports as to how successful this actually was. But uh, the Navy says that they're going to uh, use Tuffy again for um, more work with Sea Lab 3. So I guess they must have been uh, fairly happy with uh, with his performance. But, um, yeah, I think this idea. Of, uh, sorry, go on. I, I must say it does, it does worry me hearing uh, about not just a science expedition experimenting with using dolphins as tools underwater, yeah. but the Navy in particular using dolphins underwater. I do, I do wonder if uh, that, if this experimentation is solely for scientific progress and not for military use as well. It's interesting. Well, um, here's these rumors yeah. about using dolphins to uh, swim up to uh, ships, you know, enemy ships in port and attach mines to them. Um, whether this will actually occur is another matter. So, Elliot, that's interesting you bring that up. In a recent issue of Analog, just a couple of months ago, there was a story. It wasn't a very good story, but there was a story about a, a, an ex-Navy person and his pet dolphin whose job was to, to sniff out things for the Navy. So they, if we're writing science fiction about it, it probably isn't too far away. And by yeah. the way, uh, to answer Renata, who asked a question about Europa, there's a very interesting suggestion that we might need to deep sea dive a moon of Jupiter. All we know right now is that Europa is a big dot of light, probably made of ice based on its density. 
But the idea that there could be an ocean under the ice, that's that's pretty far out, man. I don't know. Pretty far-fetched yeah. far at the moment, I'd say. Um, mind you, you know, Heinland had people farming on uh, Ganymede, wasn't it? Yeah, they did. Uh, so, yeah, that was uh, actually a pretty good book, actually. I think it was Ganymede. Farmer yeah, Farmer in the Sky. Yeah, it wasn't a bad I think I think we have a review of that on the journey. In fact, I read it on a on a plane trip to Japan at one point. Um, one of our viewers had asked about the Trieste, and I believe there's been two of them. Tell us about the Trieste. Yes, that's right. The Trieste is actually really interesting because it got it. It was um, it's what they call a bathyscaphe. Now, the difference between a bathyscaphe and a bathysphere is uh, that the bathysphere is lowered down on cables from a ship uh, so it can only go it can only sort of go straight down and come straight back up into the depths of the ocean whereas the bathyscaphe is specifically designed that it can free dive so it can go within a limited range of a few kilometers or a few miles from the um from where it's initially lowered into the uh, ocean and of course we know that it was the bathyscaphe the trieste that was actually used to go to the deepest part of the ocean. That's the uh, Challenger Deep. And it's actually, what is it, about 35,000, over 35,000 and a half feet deep. So that's actually deeper than Mount Everest is tall. So that's a long way down. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, the interesting thing with the Trieste, it was actually invented or initially designed by um, Auguste Picard. And some people may recognise his name as being uh, someone who did a lot of upper atmosphere research pre-World War II um, in helium balloons. And so he thought he could apply the same pressure sphere design that he used for going, you know, high up into the atmosphere into going down into the depths of the ocean. And he designed the first bathyscaphe, uh, what was that, 47, 48, and then designed the, uh, the Trieste um, initially for the French Navy. And then, by the way, it got its name because it was actually built in uh, in Trieste in Italy. And then the French Navy sold it to the U.S. Navy, and it yeah. was the U.S. Yeah. Navy that used it for doing that that deep dive into the Challenger Challenger Deep. Yeah. Um, it had a uh, a couple of revamps to create uh, what's now Trieste Two, and in fact, both Trieste One and Trieste Two have uh, been used to locate the wreckage of the Thresher. Yeah. Now, I'm sure most people yeah. would remember that story, but if you don't know it, you know, the, tr the Thresher was a, a new class of submarine that uh, on one of its first voyages, in fact, I think it was its first uh, major testing uh, voyage. Yeah, I think it was. It was right out of the dock, mm. yeah. Yeah, and it went, uh, it uh, wound up descending below its crush depth. It's, I think, not completely clear why, but uh, they believe that uh, there might have been a particular type of uh, brazing that was used in some of the uh, some of the pipework on board the ship that failed at uh, at depth because of um, the freezing conditions, and that this may have fractured, allowed water to come into the submarine, and it was a nuclear submarine, uh, one of the first. Of this new class of nuclear general attack submarines, uh, and this may have shorted out some of the, uh, literally some of the electronics controlling the uh, the nuclear reactor, and without power, the submarine's going to sink. Well, I think but we know. They, I think we could say exactly what went wrong with the submarine. I believe that episode uh, is this one, 
And um, <laughs> uh, by Cordwainer Bird, yes. Right. And, uh, you know, anything associated with Cordwainer Bird is timing. probably going to sink to the bottom of the sea, unlike the Toad Boys <laughs> to the bottom of the sea, which somehow manages never to do it. Folks, I'm afraid we are out of time for the live show. I just want to put in a couple of plugs from our alternate sponsors. So first off, uh, you may have heard the news that Hugo finalist Laura Weir has a new novel. <clears throat> it is a fantasy novel. It is also a love story. It's the kind of story that probably would get her arrested if this were mailed or publicized in the mail, <laughs> according to a recent Supreme Court decision last month. So uh, you'll have to find it under the counter of your local bookstore or newsstand. But let me tell you, The Eighth Key is an excellent book. I strongly recommend you go out and buy 20 copies, perhaps 100. <laughs> Line your walls with them. They're great insulation. Give it to people. Read it. So, uh, yeah, give it as gifts. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, go to uh, find, uh, write, write yeah. a postcard to Journey Press and... Uh, and uh, we will send you all the information you want to know about this book because you definitely need to buy it. If you enjoyed Petra, you'll enjoy the eighth key. Uh, and okay. as always, since this is the end of our show, nevertheless, we are going to be here um, afterwards in the Portal 55 Cocktail Lounge. So if you'd like to join us for an aperitif, maybe some discussion, uh, we would be happy to continue with our esteemed panel of guests, provided Kay does not fall asleep, because, of course, I believe it's 2 a.m. in the morning, wherever <laughs> she is. Um, so well, thank you. Can I so I want to thank yeah. everyone who came and, and stayed. I, I saw nobody get up and leave the show, which is amazing, because usually someone has to go to the bathroom, often me. Um, so thank you very much for sticking it out. I want you to know that our next show is going to be on May 1st and is going to be discussing all of these amazing new legal cases that have come out. And we're going to have one of the most, the foremost attorneys in the nation here as one of our panelists. Wow. Um, hopefully Ethan can confirm that he is in fact available. We will also be starting a bit later. So normally we've begun at one o'clock Pacific. <clears throat> this time we're actually going to start at five o'clock Pacific to accommodate our special musical guest, Nanami all the way from Japan and she'll be performing some uh, some choice hits that you've probably heard of and also an original song so you definitely want to make it to the May 1st show thank you so much for joining us I hope you'll come to Portal Can 55 I add one thing? for further discussion and uh, let's everyone wave to the camera yeah if you go to Portal 55 you're going to hear about our ball Sadat oh you got it you got to go for that all right thank you everyone <laughs>